there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The sun had just risen, burning off the last of the cold night. The birds were chirping, the air was crisp and clean. It looked to be a warm day, a beautiful day, the best day ever. To find a rotting corpse. <laughs> but there she was, waiting for my father to rescue her before the flies and maggots gnawed off the rest of her rancid flesh so that all was left was bone. But that was later. At first, all he saw was a large green canvas bag. It was shoved into the bushes in the field, so big and bulky he knew it had to contain something important. Something awful. It was bound with rope, trust like a pig to slaughter. So he took his knife and sawed it open. That's when he saw her. Bony arm stretched out as if pleading for help. She was our age, a girl only in her teens. But he couldn't tell that then. He could barely tell she was human. Her nose was completely gone. One eyeball melted away. And the skin around her mouth was so decayed, her teeth were bared in a gruesome grin, as if in her half-rotted skeleton way, she was saying, Thank you for freeing me. Now please, help me find my home. But nobody ever did. It was a Halloween tale told by teenagers to scare and amuse their friends. But this one was different than all the rest. The claw. The monkey's paw. The monster under the bed. This horror story was real. The murder happened way back in 1968. Law enforcement spent years in a futile attempt to identify the young victim. But it wasn't until one Halloween night, almost 20 years later, that the search to successfully identify her began. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the mysterious young woman found murdered along a Kentucky highway 
who for years was only known as Tent Girl. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. What the heck? It was 1968. The war was still raging in Vietnam. Robert F. Kennedy had announced his run for presidency, and Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated on the balcony of his hotel room in Memphis, Tennessee. But Wilbur Riddle wasn't thinking of that at all. It was a beautiful May morning in Georgetown, Kentucky, when he came upon a large green canvas bag along the interchange of I-75 and U.S. 25. Wilbur had gone to Eagle Creek, which runs alongside the interstate, to look for insulators left behind by workmen repairing phone lines in the area. Insulators are those glass or porcelain discs you see on the cross arms of telephone poles that prevent electricity from jumping or arching off wires. There's a huge market for them as curios, and that day, May 17, 1968, Wilbur was planning on painting and selling whatever he found. I'm sure what he didn't plan on was stumbling across a very large, ominous bag hidden in the bushes by the highway. Hmm... Like it's full of something. If I could just, just pull it loose. Gosh darn. The bag got away from Wilbur and rolled a short distance down to the edge of the creek. Okay then. Let's see what we got here. But when Wilbur leaned in to check it out. Oh. 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 Oh, that's awful. Oh. There was an incredibly foul odor coming from the bag. Wilbur did the smart thing. He hurried away and called Bobby Vance, the sheriff for Scott County. It didn't take Sheriff Vance very long to arrive at the scene. He brought Deputy Jimmy Williams and Deputy Coroner Kenneth Grant with him. So what have we got here, Wilbur? See for yourself, Sheriff. Well, actually, smell for yourself. Something's in there, all right. Let's cut her open and see what we got here. Oh! Ew! Oh! oh. That's awful. Rotted. Is, is that a girl in there? Oh, I'm afraid so. Although at the time it was hard to tell exactly what the victim looked like, the body was naked and badly decomposed. There wasn't anything to hint at who she was, either. No scars, no piercings, no tattoos, no jewelry. What there was, was a mystery. Who was this young woman? And how on earth did she wind up here? Unfortunately, those questions would take 30 years to answer. The real story is exactly how the case finally was solved, and who ended up solving it. But on that day in May 1968, all the police knew is what they saw— A young woman, stuffed into a canvas bag on the side of a busy interstate. Let's see if we can open this up a little more. How could someone do that to her? I don't know, Wilbur. I just don't know. 
The victim appeared to have short, reddish-brown hair. Her face had been ravaged by decay, her nose gone, and one eyeball dissolved. Gas from her intestines had bloated her body and turned her skin black. She had been stuffed into the bag with her legs folded and her torso bent so that it almost appeared that she was sitting. She was completely naked, except for a small towel. And this is where reports differ slightly. Some say the towel was wrapped around her head. Others say it was covering her shoulders. One thing everybody agreed on, when Sheriff Vance opened the canvas bag, he found the young victim frozen in place hand clenched, fingernails ripped, as if she was trying to escape. Sheriff Vance was still only in his 30s back in 1968, but he was already an experienced law enforcement officer who'd served two four-year terms as deputy sheriff before being elected sheriff. His experience with murder, however, was a different story. Back in the 60s, Scott County was, and in many ways still is, small town south. So a murder here was pretty unusual. Before this, Sheriff Vance had only seen one other murder, and that was a pissed-off wife who shot her drunk husband to death in bed. Apparently, she was very pissed off. Now investigators were faced with an anonymous young victim with absolutely nothing to tell them who she was or where she had come from. A search of the immediate area failed to turn up a single piece of physical evidence that could help. Police hoped the body itself would yield some clues. Deputy Coroner Kenneth Grant and his assistant conducted the autopsy at St. Joseph Hospital in Lexington that same day. The victim is Caucasian, 5 feet 1 and a half inches, 110 to 115 pounds. I'd estimate her age between 16 and 19. Cause of death, sir? Well, let's see. No flesh wounds. Girl was not shot or stabbed. Nothing to suggest choking. X-rays indicate no bullet wounds or broken bones. For now, Mark's cause of death is still undetermined. What about the larva under her skin? Wouldn't that mean she was killed recently? What the coroner's assistant is referring to is that 8 to 14 hours after death, flies descend on a corpse and deposit eggs that hatch into larvae, which were found on the body. The larva then burrows into the decaying flesh, and 9 to 12 days later, the larva morph into pupa. But the autopsy didn't find any pupa on the victim. So normally that would indicate she was killed less than nine days ago, except in this case. Hmm. The blood in her vessels has completely disappeared. That suggests she's been dead at least a month. So what should I list as time of death? Weighing the two factors, I'd have to place her death at approximately two to three weeks. The discrepancy in time of death was probably due to the canvas bag, which protected the body from flies, and to periods of cold weather, which would have affected the rate of decomposition. The inability to nail down exactly when the victim was killed was just the first in a long list of difficulties that would begin to emerge over the course of the investigation. The police felt they had one bit of good luck, though. The deputy coroner managed to pull a fingerprint from the victim's badly decomposed hand. Although exactly how lucky that is is debatable, the victim would have had to have been a criminal or a civil servant to have her fingerprints on record. The other problem was that in 1968, there were over a million fingerprints on file, and all of them would have been sorted manually. The FBI's National Fingerprint Database didn't become operational until 1999. 
So all in all, there still wasn't anything for investigators to go on. But by the end of that day, word had leaked out about a murder in quiet Scott County, and the press were all over it. Unfortunately, Sheriff Vance didn't have much to tell reporters hungry for a scoop. Sheriff Vance! Sheriff Vance! Sheriff Vance! If you'll all quiet down, I can answer your questions. Sheriff Vance, I'm with the Kentucky Post and Times Star. Have you had any luck matching Tent Girl's fingerprints? Tent Girl? The victim was found in a canvas tent bag, right? That's correct. Then that's what we're calling the girl, unless you can give us a name. Sorry, not yet. Hopefully we'll have more information for you soon. But the truth was, Sheriff Vance couldn't even pin down how Tent Girl, as everyone began calling her, died. A few days passed with still nothing to go on. So Scott County Attorney Virgil Pryor called in a second coroner, Dr. Frank Cleveland, to perform a more complete autopsy. And the second time turned out to be the charm. Or at least it yielded a little more information. Come in, Frank. Autopsy finished? Just now, Virgil. Thought you'd want to know my findings soon as possible. So you got something for us? Yeah, first off, you wanted to know if there were poisons or toxic materials in the body. And? Not a trace. So she wasn't poisoned. Then what? Well, there was a slight discoloration of her skull, which indicates the victim had been knocked unconscious by a blow to her head. So finally we've got a cause of death? You do, but it wasn't from the blow. The girl was still alive when she was stuffed into the bag and tied up. She suffocated? It appears so. Jeez. At last, investigators had a probable cause of death, even though the thought of suffocating inside that bag was pretty horrible. Remember her ripped fingernails? So, first impressions were correct. She was trying to get out. If someone had just come along sooner, Tent Girl might still have been alive. But when and why she was murdered was a mystery. A few days after Wilbur Riddle discovered Tent Girl in May 1968, police began searching for anyone who might have been in the area where her body was found. The speculation was that Tent Girl had been transported by car and then dumped off the interstate, probably at night. I guess the hope was that somebody driving by saw something. Even though that may have been a long shot, the investigators had so little to go on, this tiny bit of information at least gave them something to work with. Police spent days questioning people, but nobody remembered seeing anything suspicious. Two weeks had gone by, and investigators still didn't have one single viable lead. Needless to say, they were getting frustrated. And that's when the Kentucky Post and Times Star newspaper contacted a sketch artist at the Covington Police Department. Covington is a little over an hour away from Georgetown, and while we don't have all the information, we can surmise that since Georgetown was so small and so unused to dealing with murder cases, they welcomed the help. The newspaper sent a reporter to ask Harold Musser, a patrolman and sketch artist with the Covington Police, to produce a portrait of Tent Girl from autopsy photographs of her decayed face. Mr. Musser, thanks for seeing me. Have a seat, please. Now, what can I do for you? The sheriff's office seems to be at a dead end regarding Tent Girl. We think featuring a picture on the front page of our paper will help, and nobody's going to recognize her from these autopsy photos. Let's take a look. See what I mean? I mean, who can tell anything from that? Hmm. No distinguishing features. Uh, 
not even any jewelry to focus on. She does have that front gap in her teeth. So, what do you say? I'll do my best. Musser spent a week studying the autopsy photos before creating a portrait. Up until this point, the police had been focused on the immediate area, but now, in June 1968, three weeks into the investigation, Musser's drawing was published statewide in a broader attempt to identify the girl. The black-and-white pencil sketch showed a young woman with bobbed hair, high cheekbones, arched eyebrows, and a gap between her front teeth. At the same time the image was released statewide, it also circulated as a nationwide bulletin under the heading, Do You Know This Girl? Now that they had a sketch, investigators hoped they could cross-reference Tent Girl with other missing girls. And sure enough, soon after her picture appeared, lead after lead flowed in and it looked like there might finally be a break in the case. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. And now, back to our story. In May 1968, a teenage girl was found stuffed in a canvas bag along the side of the interstate. Her face and body decayed beyond recognition. Local police, unaccustomed to murder in their small southern town, had been unable to identify the young woman known only as Tent Girl. But three weeks after she was discovered, a simple pencil sketch triggered an outpouring of leads. That June, police spent days digging through letters and following up on tips. But ultimately, none of them helped. The problem was that Tent Girl looked like a typical white American teenager. And as police sketch artist Harold Musser pointed out, aside from the gap in her front teeth, she didn't have any striking features. Kind of the generic girl-next-door type, literally hundreds of missing girls fit what little was known of her physical description. We don't have statistics for 1968, but to get an idea of the scope of missing persons, according to the National Crime Information Center, Right now, there are 80 to 90,000 people missing at any given time. In addition, back in 1968, Georgetown police were not used to dealing with missing persons, let alone someone who was murdered. But just when it seemed that Sketch of Tent Girl was a bust, they received a call from Maryland. Almost a month after Tent Girl was found, it looked like she might finally be identified. Scott County Sheriff's Station. I'm calling about that girl, the one in the sketch. Do you have information about her, ma'am? 
The girl in the sketch. Do you know who she is? I told her if you're gonna act wild, you're gonna get your sorry ass in trouble. Who is she, ma'am? My daughter, for goodness sake. And now look what's happened to her. The mother of 15-year-old Doris Dittmar saw the sketch of Tent Girl and told investigators she was certain it was her daughter, who had left town with a group of, quote, hippies and undesirables. Now we can assume investigators didn't have access to Doris's fingerprints because police immediately collected a hair sample and checked it against Tent Girls. It appeared they were almost a perfect match. So after a month of investigating, police were finally going to identify Tent Girl. The problem was that even today, experts questioned the validity of comparing hair samples, especially without DNA analysis. This was back in 1968. The U.S. didn't even begin using DNA testing until 1987. As it turned out, the hair sample comparison was not accurate because Doris was actually still alive. Just days after Mrs. Dittmar's phone call to police, Doris's family learned that she had run off with her boyfriend and the couple was living in Pennsylvania. But even though Doris ended up being a false lead, there was some good that came out of it. While police were showing Tent Girl slash Doris's sketch around town in an effort to figure out who she might have come in contact with, a truck driver recognized her. After a little over a month of frustration, investigators were going to get their first real break in the case. Welcome to the diner, Sheriff. What can I get you? Hopefully a little information. Can you take a look at this sketch? Be happy to. You seen this girl? We think she might have come through here. Hey, I think I can help you. You recognize her, sir? Yeah, pretty little thing. She was with a guy. They were hitchhiking. This girl was with a man. Yeah, you got that right. Where were they? On US 25. I was driving their rig about two and a half miles north of Sadieville when I passed them. Anything else you could tell us, sir? Just that it was raining, and I distinctly remember thinking that the clothes they were wearing were way too light for the weather. While the truck driver couldn't give them any more information, what he did say was exciting. Because Tent Girl was found right off US-25 just weeks prior. And Sadieville is only about 15 miles away from the Georgetown Interchange. That's barely a 20-minute drive. Police were excited. While they still didn't have an identity for Tent Girl, it looked like the investigation was finally heating up. And then a phone call from a retired heavy equipment operator confirmed the truck driver's story. Sheriff Station, Deputy Williams here. You're looking for information on the young woman in that police sketch? Yes, sir. Well, I'm pretty sure I've seen her. The retired equipment operator said he had picked up two hitchhikers, a young man and a woman, on April 14th near the spot where Tent Girl's body would later be found. That's just a little over a month beforehand. But according to the coroner's report, Tent Girl had been dead for two to three weeks before Wilbur Riddle discovered her. So the police were closing in on Tent Girl's activities right before she was killed. And this is the second report of an unexplained guy in the mix. Who could be the killer? Well, seemed likely. But the retired heavy equipment operator did more than just see Tent Girl and her companion. He gave them a ride. Young lady was wearing a short dress, gray sweater, and a light blouse. Which fits with what the truck driver had said. The Tent Girl's clothes were too light for the weather. And this would have been a chance to learn more about the man who very well could have murdered her. Can you give me a description of the man she was traveling with? Well, 
His hair was long and kind of hippie-like. Oh, and he had a camping pack with him. Both of them did. Anything else? Uh, just that they were pretty darn annoying. Apparently, Tent Girl and her male companion were arguing with each other so much, the man finally told them to get out. We don't know what they were arguing about? Well, there's no record of it. Unfortunately, he probably just tried to tune them out until he couldn't take it anymore. The last he saw of Tent Girl and the mysterious man, they were hitchhiking north back up towards Georgetown, where her body was found. In June of 1968, after over a month of investigating and hundreds of false starts, police at least had a lead that looked promising. Tent Girl was last seen with the male companion. Then another tip came in. This one came from an anonymous call. The caller had read about Tent Girl in the newspaper and how she had been found naked except for a towel. He claimed a towel had been cut from a roll in the restroom at Noble's Restaurant three to five weeks before the body was found, which fit the estimated time of death. Well, the restaurant was located in Corinth, Kentucky, just over 20 miles from Georgetown, where Tent Girl's body was found. Sheriff Vance and Deputy Williams drove out to check out the lead. At the restaurant, they cut a piece of towel to compare it to the towel found with Tent Girl. And while they were there, they showed the sketch to patrons. Excuse me, sir. Do you recognize this woman? Sorry. Ma'am, how about you? Never seen her. Noble's restaurant turned out to be yet another false lead in a case that was full of them. No one there remembered seeing Tent Girl. And the towel from the restaurant was a bust as well. It didn't match the towel found on Tent Girl's body. It was well into June when police received a forensic report on Tent Girl's towel from an FBI lab in Washington. Turns out, it wasn't a towel at all. The lab identified it as part of a baby's diaper, specifically a bird's eye diaper. Bird's eye is actually a type of cotton that's ultra soft and durable, and that's why it's often used to make diapers. Knowing that earlier might have helped the investigation, for instance, police could have postulated that Tent Girl was a mother. We can only assume the Georgetown police submitted their evidence to the FBI soon after the body was found, but that analysis takes a certain amount of time. The FBI lab did more than run tests on the towel. They also checked the canvas bag and the cord wrapped around it to see if they could figure out where the bag and the cord were purchased. But again, the case hit a brick wall. The materials in the bag and cord were used by so many manufacturers and distributors, police were unable to narrow down the source. At the end of June 1968, the investigation seemed to be at a complete standstill. Then Scott County police were contacted by the Philadelphia PD, and once again, it looked like their case had legs. Another girl had been found dead in April, just a month before Tent Girl was discovered and the circumstances were eerily similar. Bass aren't biting so well today. Catfish aren't any better. I'm thinking we should just cut our losses and get on home. What do you say? Yep, all right, cool. Shortly after 5 a.m. on April 13th, 1968, three men were fishing on Neshemini Creek in Bucks County, just a few miles north of Philadelphia. Hey, you guys see something on that island over there? The word creek is a little misleading here. Neshemini Creek is actually a stream that's over 40 miles long and runs through Bucks County. And that stream is pretty wide in some areas. In fact, whatever the fishermen spotted, 
It was on a small island in the middle of the stream. What'd you see? Over there. Some kind of canvas bag. See? Right there. Sure is a big bag. Looks like it's chock full with something. I got my knife. Oh! Oh Oh my god. What? What is that? Hard to tell. But I... I think it's a person. It was a girl, actually. Her name was Candace Clothier. She was a quiet, studious 16-year-old when she disappeared from her home in Philadelphia. At 8.30 Saturday night on March 9, 1968, Candace left to visit her boyfriend at the gas station where he worked. But she never arrived. Over 300 people joined in a search for her, but it wasn't until April when the fisherman found her body washed up onto that small island. Okay, so Candace disappeared in March. Her body was found in April, a month before Tent Girl was found in May. You would think police in Kentucky would have immediately picked up on the similarities. It makes sense investigators weren't initially aware of each other's cases. The national crime database used by law enforcement was pretty new. It had only been launched the year before. So it wasn't until late June 1968, over a month after Tent Girl was found, that Philadelphia police finally saw her case report. It struck them that the resemblance to Candace was unmistakable. First off, Candace's body was stuffed into a canvas bag with her feet tucked up under her torso, much like Tent Girl. Candace had a wool sweater wrapped around her head, like Tent Girl's bird's eye diaper cloth. And both bodies were dumped off a main road by a creek. But the biggest similarity? Candace's skull showed a slight discoloration in the same spot as Tent Girl's skull. Chief Fergani of Philadelphia's PD realized Tent Girl's murder opened up the possibility that the police were dealing with one killer. In early July 1968, the two police departments agreed to work together, sharing any evidence they uncovered. Unfortunately, neither case provided many clues. In fact, it wasn't until years later, in 2005, after a television show aired a cold case story about Candace, that Philadelphia police were finally able to piece together her murder. It seems Candace had caught a ride with two acquaintances who drugged her against her will and she overdosed. The men panicked and dumped her body. But because the men were both dead by that time, police never released their names. So even though Candace's murder was similar to Tent Girl, the two cases were ultimately unrelated. Correct. The summer passed, then the fall. Scott County Police seemed to keep getting closer and closer to solving Tent Girl's identity, only to be shut down again and again. By November 1968, they were at yet another dead end. So they asked Harold Musser to do a second sketch. Once again, the sketch was distributed and produced leads that, you guessed it, went nowhere. So one year after the discovery of Tent Girl in May 1969, the police tried one last time to identify the Jane Doe. They reached out to the public again, but this time they did something different. They ran an article detailing the Tent Girl murder in Master Detective magazine. During their heyday, over six million true crime magazines were sold every month. 
They were kind of like the precursor to all the true crime podcasts and television shows on the air today. Crime buffs could read about real cases, get insights into detection methods, and even see actual police photos. Scott County Police hoped one of those crime buffs might have information to help their dying case. It was a good idea. Master Detective's sister publication, True Detective, had a circulation of around two million, and we can only surmise Master Detective's readership was comparable. Unfortunately, none of the leads generated by the article panned out either. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say. Frustrated police must have felt that they had exhausted every possibility. Because in 1971, three years after Tent Girl's body was found, she was buried in a county-owned section of the Georgetown Cemetery. Oh, well, hey there, Sheriff. I'm just finishing up. What are you doing here? Came to pay my respects. Somebody oughta. Sad the poor girl's got no name. Now she's gonna be number 90 for eternity. That's all that's on the gravestone? Afraid so. I'm so sorry, darling. I'm so sorry I couldn't help you find your home. That part of the cemetery was basically a potter's field, and the assumption is that Tent Girl was the 90th person buried there. So despite all their efforts, investigators never discovered Tent Girl's identity. And by extension, who murdered her and why? That would have been that. Until one Halloween night, almost 20 years later, when a spooky campfire story meant to amuse high schoolers triggered an obsession that would not only affect Tent Girl, but change the way victims are identified forever. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. In May 1968, a young woman was found stuffed in a canvas bag by the side of the interstate in Georgetown, Kentucky. For three years, police tried everything they could possibly think of to identify the young victim, known only as Tent Girl. After hundreds of frustrating leads and empty promises that never delivered, in 1971, she was buried in the county's potter's field. It looked like she would rest there anonymous for all eternity. Then, 1987 rolled around. Trick or treat! My, don't you all look scary. Who wants some candy? Me, me, me! Me, Me, thank you! It was Halloween night, 1987, in Livingston, Tennessee, 
a small town nestled midway between Nashville, home of country music, and Knoxville, the birthplace of Mountain Dew. Livingston's downtown looked like a clock stopped in the 50s. Boys grew up hunting and playing football. Girls dreamed of being prom queen. And on Halloween night, as you might expect, kids were out in force. Oh, we're talking younger kids. As for the teenagers, they were too cool to dress up in costumes and collect sweets. That night, a number of them huddled together, each attempting to spook the others with the most frightening tale. As he sat shivering in his locked car, engine dead on that deserted road, all was quiet. Then, on the roof of his car, he heard... The claw was coming for him. 17-year-old Todd Matthews was in the group that night. Todd was a senior in high school. Born with a bum heart, he wasn't allowed to play football or hunt. But he fit in, in other ways. He was considered imaginative and bright, if somewhat stubborn. Currently, that stubborn streak was focused on winning the heart of the girl of his dreams. She was new in school. 16-year-old Lori Ann Riddle had moved to Livingston from Kentucky. She was petite with lush dark brown hair that fell to her shoulders. For Todd, it was love at first sight. From the first moment he saw Lori, he knew he would marry her. What he didn't foresee is how that Halloween night, his future wife was about to change his life in a very unexpected way. She clutches the monkey's paw in her hands and wishes with all her might, bring my son back to life. And right then, on her front door, she fumbles to open it. And that's when she sees her son's mutilated corpse standing there, and he's smiling at her. Anybody else got a story? I do, but it's not a ghost story. It's real. (laughs) It is. It's about my daddy and the day he stumbled on a dead body in Kentucky. That Halloween night, Lori told all about how her father, Wilbur Riddle, had come across the body of a mysterious teenager who, for almost 20 years, had been known only as Tent Girl. To all the other teenagers that night, it was just another Halloween filled with scary stories and too many sweets. But not Todd. He couldn't get Tent Girl out of his mind. Todd, wait up. Wait for me. Hey there, Lori. I thought you were walking me home today. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to forget. Are you okay? You've been kind of distracted. I just, I just keep thinking about that girl. Girl? What girl, Todd? The gravestone that doesn't have a name on it. You know, the one you told us about. Oh, you mean Tank Girl? That was a long time ago. I know, but I just keep thinking about her. She wasn't any older than us. She could have even been one of us. But Todd had another reason Tank Girl so captured his interest. One that he'd kept secret from Lori. Todd Matthews, come up and accept your diploma. Todd graduated, then Lori, and soon after, the two of them married. I now pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss the bride. But it was on the way to visit his new bride's family in Kentucky that Todd confided in Lori, his continuing interest in Tent Girl. We're almost there. I can't wait to see Mom and Dad. Yeah. Right. 
Todd, you've been quiet ever since we started this trip. I thought you wanted to see my parents. I do. It's just... I keep thinking about Tank Girl. Seriously? Still? I don't get it. I mean, it's sad and all, but... I guess her death just stirred stuff up in my head. What kind of stuff? I never told you, Lori, but I had a brother and a sister who died. Honey, I'm... I'm so sorry. Sue Ann and Greg. They were only babies, but still, I keep thinking that Tank Girl's no different than them. How do you mean? Just that I'm betting she had siblings who miss her, who'd want more than anything to visit her. Turns out that every Sunday while Todd was growing up, the whole family would go to church, then head over to the cemetery. The cemetery? What's where his little brother and sister were buried, along with his grandfather. He and his brother would play while his dad carefully mowed around the stones. Basically, it was a loving experience for Todd. So the idea of Tent Girl being all alone hit him harder than it did the others. Especially when Wilbur took him to visit Tent Girl's grave, just down from US-25, where he had first found her. They parked on a narrow asphalt road that snakes through the plots. She's definitely here somewhere. And there she was, in a grassy section of the cemetery in front of a fence. By then, the owner of the local funeral home had replaced the number 90 rock with a much grander headstone. But the words were still cold and clipped. Tent Girl, found May 17, 1968 on U.S. Highway 25 North, died about April 26 to May 3, 1968, age about 16 to 19 years, height 5 feet 1 inch, weight 110 to 115 pounds, reddish brown hair, unidentified. That's how I remember her, all right. But that's like a police report, not words that should be on someone's final resting place. This was definitely a contrast to Todd's lovingly maintained family plot. And in addition to his two infant siblings, Todd had another connection with death. Because of his bad heart, he underwent a risky open-heart surgery when he was eight. And all of that definitely made a lasting impression on Todd, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. Honey, I brought you some lemonade. Thanks. I just hate you going out to the grave with my daddy. You barely talk afterwards. It just reminds me of my mom. After my baby brother died, I remember her flinging herself on the new grave, clawing at the red clay. Oh, honey. Later, we'd bring flowers, few stems of roses, irises in a jar. We'd push back the grass that kept creeping up. Being at the graves, Lori, it made me feel closer to my little brother and sister. It made him real to me. Now Tent Girl's grave made her real for Todd. She was a human being, not a nameless victim stuffed in a bag. From that moment on, Todd was determined to do what the Scott County Police couldn't, track down Tent Girl's identity, no matter what he had to do or how long it took. Next episode, we'll follow Todd as his desire to identify Tent Girl and reunite her with her family turns into a full-blown obsession, one that threatens his own family. But giving Tent Girl a name is one thing, finding out who killed her is another. With the trail some 20 years old and the investigation equally as cold, the question ultimately becomes, can Tent Girl ever finally rest in peace?
You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Linda Marr and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. Mm-hmm.